it's kind of rough in a way to know what to speak to God's people when I hadn't been among you for so long a time. I think it's been about three, three and a half years since I've been down here. And I prayed to the Lord and I said, you know, what can I preach on? What do I need to preach on? But since I don't know your individual needs, I just follow the Apostle Paul's example. And when he come among the Corinthians, you will turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He knew what, and I said, yeah, that's instruction for me. He knew what to preach, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, it reads, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Amen. And in the same book in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, this is where I got my cue from, it says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Because guess what? That's what's important. That's what's important. And then over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I declared unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. One more place. It's in the book of Galatians, chapter 6. I know you have a great pastor. The one little advantage I have is coming today and hadn't been here a long time is you don't know how I'm going to do things or where I'm going to do, and so I'm going to take full advantage of that so I can maybe hope, hold your attention because you have a great pastor, and I hope that you pray for him. And I don't mind saying publicly, he's my father in the faith, especially when it comes to about being a pastor. Right. So I hope you're thankful for him every day. Amen. Galatians chapter 6. Verse 14, Paul says this, written by God the Holy Ghost. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Paul said he wasn't going to glory in anything except one thing. And what was that? He was going to glory in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, because it was there that he died to the world and the world died to him. Amen. Amen. And that's why today I want to preach to you about the glory of Jesus Christ's victorious death. And what my hope and prayer is, is that since you've been going through the book of Romans, and we have two back in high, we're just kind of a little bit behind. It'll help it tie it all together in a way that will fasten in your mind. Because I know that you know these things. What my prayer is, is that they'll stick in your mind and in your heart and your understanding. And you won't forget You won't forget it all. As the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and the biblically defined importance of that death are central facts in the Bible. Central facts. It's not some pie in the sky, some kind of just moral thing just to get us to move to be good people. I grew up all my life in a liberal Presbyterian church, and that was the kind of things I heard. 
And you've heard it so many times at the social gospel. Oh, I've been to the mounting and I've seen these things. That doesn't mean anything. Right. Not anything. And I want to show you today Jesus Christ's glory, especially about his victorious death. And what could be more glorious? What could be more glorious? Amen. And another reason I want to show you this is because guess what? The more as you as a believer realize and believe this by faith, the deeper will be your joy. Right. The deeper will be your joy. Because nothing can compare to it. All a believer's joy is rooted and based on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It all comes from there. All comes from there. I want to teach you about his glory today under two headings. And I'll try to keep it as simple as I can. The first one will be the glory of Christ's death and its manifold accomplishments. Many manifold accomplishments. And then in particular, I want to talk about the glory of Christ's death and its propitiation. Anybody that's known me for long, you know I love propitiation. And you go, what is that 50-cent word? I don't even use that word anymore. What in the world? Well, I hope that today you'll understand it, and I hope that you'll never forget it, and you'll come to be with me, and you'll love that word propitiation. Because I'll tell you what, very subtly, it is attacked, it is mocked, it is ignored, and most people are just ignorant about it. And you would never guess. We're living in dark days, very dark days. I was reading the other day the most conservative Presbyterian denomination in our country. They cannot agree on that God created the world in six days. They have some false teaching going among themselves now, and they don't even have enough backbone to deal with it. Right. And that is conservatives. Not liberals, but conservatives. So let's start. First of all, in Christ, the glory of Christ's death and its manifold accomplishments. We looked already, God's salvation is a salvation that's centered on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Centered on there. Why is it so important? Have you ever thought about that? Couldn't God just said, you're forgiven? Just that simple? Oh, no. Our God is a holy and just God, and he will by no means clear the guilty. He has got to be just and holy in all his ways. And so he just can't do anything willy-nilly. He'd deny himself. He would deny himself. But the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is what it is because of what we are as sinners. It had to be that way. It had to be that way. But what I like is the work of Jesus Christ is what it is. Because of who he is. Right. Because guess what? He is a real man, but not just any man. He's the God man. God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God. And we beheld his glory. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us as the only begotten Son of God. Right. I don't know about you, but when at the very beginning the Lord first started working my life, it just blew me away. My God came and died for me. That's right. My God. He didn't send a man. He became the man. That's right. It's amazing. It's amazing. That's why in Matthew chapter 1, it was so important that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Now, I know you know this, 
But you realize that if you went to most seminaries and colleges and stuff, no one believes that anymore. The best you might see it is some science fiction movie where they try to copy God's word, where the hero in their movie is born some kind of way that they can't explain. But this is a fact. This is not some movie. Right. In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20 it says, But when he thought on these things, it was talking about Joseph. He's a just man, and this woman that he was going to be marrying finds out she's already pregnant. And it says, And while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Amen. And behold, and it says, Now all this was done, it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Right. So don't tell me you are a Christian and you deny the virgin birth. Not at all. Not at all. And it's so important, because I'm telling you, people are falling away. Now, I don't know about the rest of the world. I don't know about the rest of the world. I keep reading things, and it seems like they're doing a whole lot better than us. Now, I don't mean financially or freedoms. I'm talking about spiritually. I hear about churches, and not only in Asia and all, but other places, all kind of work's going on. I don't know enough details to know what kind of work it is, but it sounds good what I hear. But I don't hear stuff like that here in America. Not in it at all. But I'm here to tell you every category of Christ's death. And if his salvation is for us, it's for us. You and I are sinners. And I'll tell you something, sin produces real guilt. Real guilt. You don't feel guilty just because you've been brought up in the wrong environment. Your self-esteem has been crushed or whatever. Oh, no. You have real legal guilt. Right. Real legal guilt. You have a real legal liability before the Holy God. Turn over to Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3, in verse 9, Paul says, What then? Are we better than they? No one no wise. For we have, but have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they're all under sin. And he goes on down and he comes down to verse 19. He says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Right. Real legal guilt. But guess what? We look in our Bible. We know we need a sacrifice to take care of this guilt, to cover our sin. And lo and behold, over in Hebrews chapter 9, I preached a long series, a series on Hebrews. I haven't done Romans. <laughs> but in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, showing how he is superior as our great high priest, it says, For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But I love the words of the Holy Scripture. It says, But now once, not every time you do the Mass, once, but now once in the end of the world, have he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Amen. So there is taking care of our guilt. And he did it once for all. Once. Not just past sins, not just present sins, even future sins. 
not just my sins I did personally, but the sin that I had with Adam when I fell in him. Covered it all. That sacrifice took care of it. But not only that, turn, if you will, to Romans 1. Sin provokes the wrath of a holy God. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. Oh, they can say what they want. They know that there's a God. But guess what? The wrath of God is revealed. The wrath of God. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 says, Among whom also we, that's Paul, including the believers that's there at Ephesus, he says, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past. He doesn't mean just talking. He means the whole life. In the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Right. To Lord quicken us, we were just like everybody else. Children of wrath. Children of wrath. And we need it. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what happened? What happened when he died? Well, we'll go into it more detail later, but it's called propitiation. God's wrath was appeased. God's wrath was appeased. Everything was settled. I'll just put it this way. Over in First John chapter 4. You have all kind of songs and all kind of ideas people have of what love is, you know. This wasn't some famous, I think, country song where it tries to give pictures of what love is. But I like what God says love is. And in 1 John 4.10 it says, Herein is love. You hear what God is saying? He wants you to look here. Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is what true love is. That is what true love is. And guess what? That wrath has been appeased. We needed that. But guess what else sin does? It creates real alienation. Alienation is when parties are hostile to each other. Hostile to each other. But God is righteously against us. And we're unrighteously against him. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. When Paul was writing to the believers here and telling them how they should walk, he refers back to the Gentiles and walking in the vanity of their mind. In verse 18 he says, Having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. And not only that, if you will, turn over to Colossians. Chapter 1, in verse 21 and 22, he says, And you that were sometimes, sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now have you reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Alienation. And let me show you something. You've been in Romans. Turn back to Romans chapter 8, just this one little verse. See, nobody's really neutral. 
or some right. people trying to tell me that, well, that person's not all that bad. It's just kind of neutral. Oh, no. Oh, no. In Romans 8, verse 7, when Paul was describing the carnal mind, he describes it this way. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. It's not subject, and it doesn't even have the ability to be. You know why? It's that one little word, enmity. It's another word we don't use much. Do you know what that word means? You're shocked when you read, look it up in a dictionary. It means hatred. Not just disagreement. It means hatred. Right. Hatred. Yet, over in Romans chapter 5, I'm kind of going down the Romans road today, aren't I? Romans chapter 5, verse 10, we read in our Bibles again, and we read about reconciliation in Romans 5, 10, and look at what does it say. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Precious, precious good news. Great news. Great news. You think that the death of Christ is glorious? Oh, yes. Very good. Very good. But not only that, sin creates bondage. Over in John chapter 8. Verse 34, he was talking to some Jews. and You know, they wanted to claim that they weren't slaves to nobody. You know, they're not bondage to anybody. They were Abraham's seed, supposedly. And yet, you know, our Lord is no dummy. You know, they forgot that the Roman Empire was ruling over them anyway. Politically, you know, but they claim they weren't at all, but he laid this on them. In Romans 8, verse 34, Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Oh, no, you're not free. You're under bondage, and that's what sin creates. You're under bondage. But over in Romans chapter 6 again, You don't have to turn if you don't want to. In Romans chapter 6, verse 17 and 18, Paul says, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that former doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. And again, the glory of Christ's death. That's what freed us from it. Sin creates bondage. Oh, it creates bondage. Because in Colossians chapter 1, it says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. We've been redeemed. We've been bought back. And what was that price that was paid? There was only one price that would be acceptable, and that was the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's right. The precious blood. I mean, precious. And that's why we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20, do you remember? You've been bought with a price. Right. He wants to remind you, you're to serve the Lord with your body and your soul and your spirit because you've been redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you something. Being a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ, you can say what you want, but his chains all around me are love, not iron cold chains, but know a loving, warm, loving heart. And like the Apostle Paul, how can you stay away from his love 
constrains you. Right. His love constrains you. How could someone like the Apostle Paul going through all the stuff he has, you know, come on, just over and over again. And there's nobody that could try to out-brag him about what he'd been through suffering. But he knew the Lord had suffered more than him because our Lord had suffered the wrath of God for him. Right. <clears throat> That's why he said the love of Christ constrained him. It constrained him. And the Lord took care of that. But guess what else? Over in Ephesians chapter 2, there's something else there. And oh, this is not believed at all. Sin makes you and me to be under the control of evil and foul, sinister spirits. In Ephesians chapter 2, start with verse 1, it says, You have he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, whether they know it or not, whether they know it or not, foul, evil spirits work in sinners, and they used to work in me and you, and they still want to get a hold of you. Still want to get a hold of you. But then we look in the Bible again, and what do we read that Jesus did on the cross? He destroyed the power of the devil. Amen. He destroyed the power. Do you remember the promise at the beginning chapter Genesis chapter 3? Oh, that serpent might bite his heel. But that same heel was going to crush his head. And it crushed it. In Hebrews chapter 2, I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that greater is he that sent me than he that's in the world. Amen. We're no match for the devil. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, For as much sin as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise, as Jesus Christ, took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. That is the devil. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Yes. Right. And then Colossians chapter 2. You sure turn to a lot of verses, Brother Jim. Well, that's okay. You don't have to turn there if you'll just listen. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And you, being dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh... Have he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailed it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers. Who do you think he's talking about here? He says he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. The devil and all those foul spirits thought, man, they really accomplished something. They got all these people. Supposedly God's own people, the put to death, the prince of life, the coming Messiah, the seed of the woman, the one they've been waiting for all their life. And he's got them saying his blood be upon their heads. They're demanding to be crucified. Pilate knows that he's innocent, that it's just for envy that the Pharisees are behind it. And he's thinking he's triumphed over it because you can imagine what it did to people at first. The two men that's walking down the road said it, you know. We thought he was the Savior, the one that was going to come and deliver us. But now they see him die. 
But oh, how little did they know that his death on the cross was a great triumphant thing. Not a defeat. Not a defeat. When they thought that he had got the Lord Jesus Christ finally, putting the death of the Lord Jesus Christ was destroying him. Destroying him. Oh. And Jesus Christ's death accomplished all those things. Right. And that's just a little bit. That's just a little bit, brother. Just a little bit. But I want to go into more detail now about the glory of Christ's death and accomplishment of propitiation. Of propitiation. A word we don't even use and I don't think hardly anybody understands anymore. It's like I said, it's just ignored. They don't understand. Turn over to Romans chapter 3. These verses right here are just so rich, just packed full. And Romans 3, verses 24 and 25 says, you know, remember, Paul has been coming along and showing just how wicked we are, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, and how awful it is. And he comes up, and in a verse 23, he says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But then verse 24 and 25 says, being justified freely, not conditionally, justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a, what? Propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Right here in the middle of the richness of these verses, notice what he says, propitiation. Right. Now you tell me why most people... Don't preach and teach on it. A ver- word like this in the different places it is, wouldn't you think everybody would know? But most people don't. And then some that do know a little about it, they try to water it down because they do not like the idea behind it, appeasing the wrath of God. They don't like a God that's holy and just. Right. See, they like some God that's like just some old real warm-hearted God, uh, grandfather that, you know, wants to spoil the kids and the grandkids and just not criticize or do anything at all. That's the kind of God they want. But the God of the Bible is a holy God and right. a just God. And they don't like it. <coughs> Remember, we looked at 1 John 4.10. I'll point this out to you. His love and the sin of his son, what was it connected to? It focuses on propitiation. Now, I would think from that, that would wake some people up. But it doesn't. Right there connected with his love and sending his son is that word, propitiation again. So what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Well, let me show you one other place. In First John chapter 2. In First John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And I hope and trust that you know when he talks about the sins of the whole world, he's not talking about every individual. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. Right. Of all his elect people, wherever they are. Okay. But notice here, propitiation is connected with Jesus Christ being our advocate. And he says not only that Jesus Christ made a propitiation, 
He says Jesus Christ is the propitiation. He is the propitiation. Every Christian yearns and struggles not to sin. You know, it seems like you make some progress, and then you just fall flat on your face again. And you get so frustrated. And this is why the charismatic movement is so appealing to people. It just seems, oh, if you could just do this one thing and be free from sin. Oh, because you know that every sin deserves the wrath and the judgment of a holy and a just God. Right. And you know how offensive it is that now that you're saved and you're still sinning against him. And it's a struggle. But you know what? The Apostle Paul, who God the Holy Ghost, wanted you to remember something here. He's writing these things here to you that you won't see and to help you. But he reminds you of something. And we're going to go into the meaning of it. But you have an advocate, and that advocate is your propitiation. Amen. Oh, that is good news. That is good news. That's why I'm looking forward to one day, brethren, when we have our glorified bodies. We won't have a single sinful thought or motive or anything. Not at all. Not at all. We have a wonderful Savior. I'm here to tell you, turn over to John chapter 20. I was thinking of this. We were singing the songs. He has five clearly seen scars that he received on Calvary. Five of them. You say five. Yes, he got crucified through his hands and through his feet. But remember when the soldiers came, they took the spear and stabbed it in his side. Right? And there's a song that we have in our hymn book I like, but it needs tweaking up a little bit. It says, five bleeding wounds he bears. Song needs to be tweaked up a little bit. He's got five scars because once that blood was poured out and it was poured out. Right. John chapter 20, verse 27. This is Doubting Thomas here. You know, Thomas, I like, at least he's honest. They always refer to him as Doubting Thomas, but it's just, to him it just seemed too good to be true. Did the Lord really rise from the dead? He just wouldn't believe it. But the Lord knew what he was thinking. And he comes there and he says to Thomas, verse 27, Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand and thrust it to my side, and be not faithless but believing. Oh, he's got five wounds there. And let me tell you, as our advocate, and just a figurative way of speaking, it was any time the judge wanted to say anything, there's those wounds. There's those scars. The blood's been spilt. The blood's been spilt. Oh, it's been spilt. Now, I brought it up to you and told you, you know, that it means to appease. But I want it to stick in your mind. And I've learned this in time from the Lord. I want to show you a little more thing that hopefully it'll stick in your understanding about propitiation. Because I know, you know, you'll go out tomorrow, you'll go out today, unless you talk about it, you're not going to use the word propitiation. Nobody's talking about I propitiated my boss because I messed up today. We don't talk that way. We don't talk that way at all. But the Lord picked that word on purpose. Right. See, what I'm saying is there's a lot of people that are subtle They'll talk about, yes, your sins were washed away and covered, but they won't talk about God's wrath and being need to be appeased. 
They'll say that you need to be reconciled to God, but they'll never discuss that God needs to be reconciled to you. See? And it goes back to that old thing. They don't like a holy and just God. They don't like a holy and just God. But I want to take you by the hand in a figurative way of speaking, and I want you to hear and to see what propitiation is. The Bible is written in different ways, and we're going to look at one way, and that's in the gospel. It's written in what's called a narrative. And what a narrative is is totally different from the epistles. And the narrative, you're just reading and observing what happened, this history. And if you ever notice, the Bible does this. When you come to Paul's epistle, he just opens up with praise and prayers, and he just starts bringing doctrine out and just goes right into the duties, right? But in a narrative, it's there. You're just reading about it. You're listening about it. And it's my hope that you'll that'll stick in your mind more. You know as well as I do that you can hear about a lot of things, but when you actually experience something and go there, it just stays with you a lot better. We're going to go to a place called Gethsemane. And there we'll see the preview of propitiation, which Jesus was about to drink. It's a preview. And then we'll go to a place called Golgotha. There we'll see Jesus drinking the cup of propitiation to the last, last drop. Last drop. Let's go to Gethsemane. Turn over to Mark chapter 14. In Mark chapter 14, I call this a preview because it's like, as you can, you'll see, it's like the Lord has brought the cup of, if you look at it as a picture like this, the cup of propitiation, and he sat it down before the Lord Jesus Christ now to let him see what he's going to have to drink. And we're going to see how deep and how hard, but what this was for, and what our Lord, how much he loved us, what he had to endure. Let me tell you. You look here in Mark chapter 14, verse 32, it says, And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he saith to the disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John. And this is amazing to me. And began to be sore amazed, and to be very heavy, and saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. I don't have too much of imagination. That's where I got the figure of speech, a cup. Got it from the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? But you look at this here. Look at what he says. He's sore amazed. That doesn't mean amazed in wonderment. He's sore amazed when he's looking at the punishment, the wrath that he's going to have to bear for me and you. Right. This is the Holy One of Israel. He's never had an evil thought. Never said nothing the wrong way. Never did a sinful thing. It was his meat and drink, he said, to glorify his Father and everything. He didn't care if he had any food or not. He knew his father would provide it whenever he needed it. And he was very heavy. He didn't gain weight all of a sudden. It was the burden of it. Right. Just made him feel so heavy. 
And, you know, and I want you to notice this. He said to his disciples, if you read all through the other Gospels, you never see him speak in this way. He says, my soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. He's, the anticipation is so much, he said, I'm sorrowful unto death. Have you ever said that? I just think I'm going to die. But his sorrow is coming in so much that he's finally opening up. He's never opened up like this before to his disciples. He's wanting them to pray for him. And I'll remind you, every time he came back, they were asleep. They were asleep. As a man, example he set for us, when you get in like this, what did he do? He turned to prayer. But I want you to notice all these things. You don't read about this any other place. Sore amazed, heavy. My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. And he prays to the Father, if it be possible, take this cup away from me. Take this cup away. Turn over to Luke chapter 22, because Luke brings in something else in here. Luke 22, verse 39. And he came out and went, as he was wont, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And I watch, because you've learned about angels lately, haven't you? I think so. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. He needed an angel from heaven to strengthen him. This is just a preview. Anticipation of doing that cup of propitiation. And he needed an angel to strengthen him. An angel. And it says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. He's in agony when he's praying. Agony. He cannot fail in one thing. Not one thing. What would have been the easiest thing to do? And he would still have been holy. Just give up. But he didn't. And look at what it says. He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Mm-hmm. He's sweating blood. Let me remind you about something, because I've been talking about the weather. That night was cold. How do I know this? You read the gospel accounts. And when Peter came up, remember, what were the soldiers doing? They built a fire. They didn't build a fire just for light. They built the fire because it was cold. It's cold and chilly outside, and our Lord is sweating. That's how much the burning was. That's how much it was. And he was doing it for me, and he was doing it for you. Right. And it's such a terrible thing to him that he prays if it be possible, if there's just some other kind of way. If there's some other kind of way, but though he knew there was no other way, thy will be done. Thy will be done. What love. What love. He was to drink the cup of wrath of force, and it filled him with horror and dread. 
we can't even imagine, but it gives us some little sense of it. But you know what I like? He prayed, Thy will be done, because then in all that preview, he resolved, yes, he would do it. His love was so great for you and me, and in glory for God, he would do it. He would do it. And you look at John chapter 18. Remember it says he laid down his life willingly for his sheep. John chapter 18. I want to show you his resolve. I know you've read this before, but look at it at this angle. Remember they come out. Jesus knew that Judas, who he was, and he knew Judas knew where he was want to go to pray. And when they come out, he asked them who they were looking for. See, that doesn't sound like somebody in agony anymore. He's got over that now. He's resolved he's going to do it. Right? Mm-hmm. And remember here in uh, John chapter 18, verse 10, it says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it out, drew it out, drew it, and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. I like this. Real historical facts. The Lord even tells you the name of the servant. This really happened. This isn't made up stories. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheaf. The cup which my father have given me, shall I not drink it? You see his resolve? I mean, I know he appreciated Peter doing what he's doing, but like so many times we do, we want to do things in the flesh. <laughs> it's not going to be by the government. It's not going to be by the sword. He says, the cup the father's given me, shall I not drink it? And he heals that man's ear. He's resolved. Now let's go to Golgotha. Turn to Mark chapter 15. Oh, I just feel like, brethren, if I could just describe it even more. In Mark chapter 15, verse 22, it says, And they bring him, that's Jesus, into the place, Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. And they gave him the drink wine mingled with mirth, but he received it not. Why do you think that was? Have you ever thought about that? Or you've been too fast in your Bible reading and just passed right over that. Have you ever thought about why wouldn't Jesus drink this wine mixed with myrrh, mingled with it? Do you realize what this was? This is a little potion thing that they kind of did to try to ease the pain. To ease the pain, to make it be a little more bearable. But remember, Jesus Christ was our legal representative. He wanted to drink the very last drop of the wrath of God. So me and you would not have to experience any of it. Not one bit of it. Not one bit. Let me tell you, getting chastised by the Lord is nothing compared to God's wrath coming upon you. I like how Paul put it in the book of Hebrews. Next time you think you're really suffering and going, I'll just ask you, where's the blood? You haven't resisted in the sin <laughs> to the shedding of blood. Oh, that's why he could easily take it, but he wouldn't take it. And let me say this as a side note. You say, Is this man never going to stop? I'm getting there. I'm getting there. When sinners sink into hell, there's going to be nobody offering you any kind of wine mingled with mirth. There's going to be nobody there to stop what's going to happen. 
on the day of judgment, and everybody's thrown into the lake of fire, well, all the rest of us will be saying amen. And there'll be nobody interceding or advocating for anybody when they're thrown into hell with the lake of fire. And that will be no softening about the terrors at all. We're living in the day and time now where people is even denying the doctrine of hell. I'm such an old man, I can remember the only people that used to do that was liberals and Jehovah Witnesses. And now other people that want to impress people that they're so, oh, broad-minded, they say, I just can't believe a loving God would torment sinners for eternity. Why not? He's holy and just. Right. He's holy and just. And the devil will be in there. They wanted to follow him. They wanted to do everything he wanted to do. Well, guess what? They'll all be in there together. Amen? But you know what's amazing? Me and you need to be put in there as well. But guess what? Guess what? We have an advocate. We had a legal representative. We had a great high priest. And he died in our place. He died in our place. And I look at that and I know I'm no better than anybody else. But he set his love upon me. From all eternity, not when I believed, but from all eternity before I believed. That's why I love in Romans like how Paul puts it. You know, maybe pre-adventure somebody might dare to die in a battlefield for somebody. And there's some men that do it. But to die for people that hate you, that have no love for you at all. And if you left it to their own choice, they would never choose you. Oh, oh. Turn to Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, do you remember? This is where Jesus got his cry from. When he's on the cross, this one that had perfect, never-ending fellowship with the Father. His meat and drink was to do the will of his Father. He didn't worry about vacations or taking a break. I mean, the crowds heard about him and they was there constantly if they knew where he was. And then when he was going to choose his apostles, it's such a burden. He spends all night in prayer because it's such a responsibility. Look here in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he cries that out, and he get, here it is in Psalm 22. Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Because our Heavenly Father would not even spare his only beloved Son. When he was there in our place on the cross. Right. Spared him not. Now think, that's how just and holy God is. That even the one in whom he's well pleased, when he's in our place, God did not hold back. God did not hold back at all. Not at all. But I want to describe it a little bit here. You go on down, and this is the Lord Jesus Christ. The man who gave this was just prophesied. Okay. It says, but I am a worm and no man a reproach of men and despise of the people. They're mocking him. He's stripped of his clothes. The Roman soldiers are at his feet rolling dice for his clothes. The Jews that should know better, they're mocking him. Oh, he says he can destroy the temple and raise it back up in three days. Let's see you do it. They're looking at him bleeding on the cross. And the Pharisees, oh, we claim to be the Son of God. Well, come on down and I'll believe. And if that's not bad enough, the two thieves right there beside him, and one of them is one of his lost sheep, and they're both throwing insults at him. And then if that's not enough, that cry, 
My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because he's suffering the wrath of God. Right. Oh, remember? For three hours it went dark. Dark. Now, I don't know how. I'm just thankful and glad. But all that eternal punishment me and you deserved was poured on him. It was poured on him. All that they see me, all that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lift. They shake the head saying, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him seeing he delighteth in him. The Lord already knew what he was going to be doing. But oh, the Lord goes down and says that you know, the Lord is his help. But look how he describes it. They gap upon me with their mouths as a ravening roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me to the dust of death. All the suffering. Do you want to know what propitiation is? There it is. And let me tell you something. When I look at it like this, it stays in my mind a whole lot better than just looking up in the dictionary and seeing the definition. Right. A whole lot better. A whole lot better. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, do you remember what it says? He was made a curse for us. He took the curse away so we wouldn't have to experience it. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, i got to read this. I can't mess this up. Oh, it's precious. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 21. For he, that's God, have made him, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin. What? Yes, he was our legal representative. He knew no sin, but he was made to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He was our legal representative. Our sins legally were laid on him. All the punishment, every drop, every dredge of that cup of propitiation was poured on him because his perfect life, his perfect obedience, his perfect faith is considered ours. And you say, oh, but Brother Jim, every day I have these evil thoughts and desires. I'm just not worthy of it. And I just struggle with these sins. Some of you might have been struggling for 20, 30 years or more. But guess what? We have an advocate with the Father. He's our propitiation. That punishment has been taken care of. How does the Lord put it in one place? You tell me. How far is the east from the west? That's right. How far is the east from the west? Oh, and remember in John 19, verse 30, it tells you, do you remember some famous last words of our Lord Jesus Christ? You know, people talk about this, but this is more glorious than anybody else's words. Their words are just, I won't say it. I need to be discreet here. It's just not worth anything, okay? They're not worth anything. But Jesus' last words is what? It is finished. Amen. It is finished. Do you think it was finished? Do you believe it was finished? I'll read in Isaiah chapter 53 this. And I know Jesus read as a man read his Bible. And Isaiah 53 verse 10 and 11 says this. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Who bruised him? The Lord bruised him. He hath put him to grief. Thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
He shall see the travail, travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Amen. And that's why I say to you, his death is glorious. Amen. His death is glorious. And you ever forget it, just go back. Just go back and read the Gospels and remember what he said and what he did. He didn't give up. He didn't quit. Yet he was in all that agony and all that pain. And he still chose to do it. Still chose to do it. That is propitiation. Because guess what? It is finished. It's finished. And it's not five bleeding wounds. It's just five wounds because the blood has been spilled once and for all. How can you get more glorious than that? What hero or what superstar could be more better than that or even compare? There is no one that can compare. No one. And that's why the Lord says, Jesus Christ is the wisdom and power and glory of God. Because there it is all right there. The love and justice of God just meets right there in him. Oh, it just meets right there for him. But I hope that you'll hold on to this dearly and study it out even more because let me tell you, it's not being taught in most places. I know it is here, but it's not taught in most places. And I'm talking about conservative places. They don't like it. And they're just slip sliding away. Slip sliding away. Oh, don't be so strict. Well, it just starts with that one step in the wrong direction. Right. That one step in the wrong direction. Right. May the Lord Jesus Christ be praised for his glory and his triumphant death because it was finished. Amen. He doesn't have to do it ever again. Unlike the priest under the Old Testament, he doesn't have to get up every morning and every afternoon. Oh, no. Did it once and for all. Yes. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy great love. We thank Thee for giving of Thine only begotten Son, even the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation for our sins, to be our advocate. We ask, O Lord, that You remember this day that we are Thy people, whom Thou hast redeemed with His precious blood. And all Your promises, O Lord, fulfill them in our lives today. Fill us all with Thy Holy Ghost. Unite our hearts to fear thy name and help us to be doers of thy word and not just hearers. Remove all deception from us. Remove all pride from us. Anything else that gets in the way and have mercy upon us and help us to be a people set on fire for thee. Accept us, O Lord, this day as living sacrifices to do thy will. Mm -hmm. O Lord, help us. Help us not to forget any of this. And we will give thee all the praise and glory for it. For it's in Jesus Christ's precious name we ask this. Amen. Amen.